Some of you remember, some of you weren't here last year, but some of you remember last year our church went through a process called the Missional Pathway. Uh, we had four separate meetings. Uh, the first two, uh, the purpose was for you to discover your calling as a believer in Christ, what Christ has put you on earth to do. And the second two were about us discovering as a church what more we can do to take the love of Christ into our neighborhood. And so we that ended up with three different initiatives that our church committed to pursue over the next three years. And this is the first one. We're adopting Sam Houston Elementary School, as Keith said, just two blocks away. And I'm excited about that. At my previous church, we had a partnership with a local elementary school that turned out to be such a beautiful thing. Uh, every Tuesday, I would go and pray with the principal. Um, I, I got to go on career day and talk about being a pastor. Of course, there were FBI agents and people like that there, and so they were pretty unimpressed with me. But still, it was an exciting experience and, and a very rewarding experience for us. You know, I'm the son of an elementary school teacher. My sister-in-law is currently doing uh, that same work. People who teach children and teenagers, they're on the front lines in many ways, and, and they're underpaid, they're undersupported. We have the opportunity to come alongside them and be a blessing to them, to these families in our local community, to these children, to help equip them for life. This is a great way for us as a church to make an impact. Our goal here in all these things we do, as well as the things we've already been doing, is that people around us who may not even be Christians yet, especially them, would say, you know, thank God that there's a God who would create people like that. We live in a country, in a world where people are less and less inclined to think of God, to think of Christ, and yet when they see us loving people and changing the community in a powerful way without asking for anything in return, you can't deny that kind of witness. And so that's our goal. Uh, as, as you saw in the video, there's going to be a table in the atrium starting today and for the next six weeks through the end of July for you to get involved in this ministry. We're starting off with just three Three different ways to get involved. One is to mentor. In other words, to show up on a, a day a week and eat lunch with a child and get to know that child over the course of an academic year. You don't have to be able to do fifth grade math. You just have to eat lunch. We can all do this. Um, you can go be a reading buddy. Go and, and read with a, a child or have the child read to you. The third way was going to be to uh, help with resources, with uh, school supplies and things that the teachers had requested. We had this beautiful board out in the atrium with all these things that people had requested that the school had requested, and I was going to tell you all about that, but the 8.30 crowd took all of them. So, uh, yeah, you, you gripe at those 8.30 people for being so exceptionally generous if you want to, but we've already gotten that taken care of. Now let's focus on those other two needs. Help us out if you can, if you're willing. Y'all turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. We are closing out our series today. Uh, nothing held back. And we've been talking about uh, different idolatries we struggle with. Today's message is going to be a little bit different. Years ago, before we had kids, so this would be the mid-90s, uh, my wife, Carrie, and I went on a movie date with my parents. And we went to see a movie that many of you probably never heard of. It's called The Ghost in the Darkness. Uh, Val Kilmer, Michael Douglas, some of you may have seen it. Um, it's based on a true story. The actual story is, of course, a little different than the movie portrays it. But in the actual story, in 1898, the British government was building a railroad into the interior of Africa. And when they got to the Savo River in Kenya, 
they stopped. They had to cross this river. They had to build a bridge. It was only about 100 yards long. It shouldn't have taken long, but it took them a long time because workers started disappearing one or two at a time. And eventually they realized they weren't deserting. They were being attacked and killed and eaten by a pair of lions. It's a true story. And so at this point, the foreman of the project, Colonel John Henry Patterson, said, I've got to find these lions. I've got to stop them so I can protect my workers. And so being an army officer, he had some training. He decided to go hunting. He would, every night, he would get up into the trees and wait and watch and hope that they would come by so he could, he could fire upon these lions. At one point, he got the army to assist him, and they combed the whole jungle around there trying to find them, and they couldn't. They even rigged up this elaborate trap with a bunch of cages inside a, a railroad car, and he put himself inside his bait. That actually lured the lions into the cage, but the, the workers doing the, the trap malfunctioned. They, they messed up, and the lions got away. So for, for months and months, this, these attacks continued. Every night, just about, somebody would die. And this movie is very intense, I have to warn you. If you go look it up and stream it, it it'll, it'll keep you awake at night. And we walked out of the theater that night. We were in uh, Hallettsville, Texas, so about 15 minutes from where I grew up. And we walk out, and we're standing on the sidewalk, my wife and I and my parents, and my dad looks at us, and he goes, well, I'm going to go home and shoot the cat. <laughs> That's my dad. And uh, he did not. All you cat lovers, just relax. The cat was, you know, I'm sure had... Spawn after spawn after that. It, you know, don't worry about the cat. But I, I tell you that story because we live in a modern time. We live, most of us, in a fairly urban setting. Modern technology, we just don't really worry about wild animals attacking us. Maybe you get a little concerned when you go out at night that you might step on a copperhead. That, that's a prob probably a pretty safe concern. You might be a little afraid of creepy crawly things here or there, but none of us ever thinks, man, I hope a lion doesn't attack me and drag me out of my bed and eat me tonight. But if you time traveled back to Kenya in 1898 and you were up in the tree next to Colonel Patterson, you think you'd be aware and alert? Do you think you'd be having your eyes wide open the whole time? I think so. See, Peter is writing to a group of people, Christians in the first century, in the part of the world we call Turkey today, and he's saying, I don't want you to experience what happened to me. Let me read you the passage he writes to them. Chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So Peter is writing and telling us to be watchful. And I want to make something clear before we get into the rest of this. He's not saying watch out for demonic possession. If you've read the Gospels at all, you know the stories uh, of people who were possessed of demons. That's not what he's talking about. The reason I know he's not talking about that is because if Christian kids be judgmental bullies on their campuses or spineless wimps who just go along with the rest of the world's ways. He wants to see us, all of us, entrapped by greed and addiction 
and bitterness and ignorance. He wants to see churches known for things like division and prejudice and fear and anger. Churches that won't even try to share the love of Christ with others. He wants us to be his best tool in keeping other people from following God and the salvation we have in Jesus Christ. And I think you and I, if we're honest, would say he's winning way more often than he should. I think we know that. So what do we do? See, the good news, the very good news is Peter doesn't say, well, you you just have to hope he doesn't come attack you. You just have to sit in your tent and, and hope the lion doesn't come get you. No, he says, load up, let's go hunting. That's what this passage is about. How do we fight back? How do we slay the lion? How do we become the devil's worst nightmare? How do we become not victims, but conquerors and more than conquerors? That's what this passage is about. So, Three things. Number one, he says, humble yourself. You want to fight against the devil? Humble yourself. And you may say, well, that doesn't sound very militant, very active, and yet we misunderstand what humility is, what it means to humble ourselves. There was an old song when I was a kid, Mac Davis, some of you are going to know this, some of you, it's way before your time, but it goes like this. I'm not going to sing it, don't worry. Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror. I get better looking each day. To know me is to love me. I guess I'm a heck of a man. Oh, Lord, it's hard to be humble, but I'm doing the best that I can. And a lot of us think of pride and humility in those kinds of cartoonish terms. Like pride is someone who is boastful and arrogant and goes on and on about how great they are. And on the other hand, humility is not thinking much of yourself and saying, I have nothing to offer. I'm no good. Nobody could ever want me. I've served no purpose. And both of those definitions are wrong. Because pride is not just boastfulness. Most of us would say, well, I don't brag, so I'm not prideful. Pride is when you're fixated on yourself. Most people who struggle with pride, and that's most of us in this room, including me, most of us who struggle with pride, it's not because we're boasting about how great we are. It's because we're lamenting and moaning our lot in life. Self-pity is the most common form of pride I know of. You, you, You want everyone to know how terrible life is to you. You want everyone to know how unfair things have been in your life. On the other hand, the humble person doesn't think little of themselves. The humble person loves who they are in Christ. They they wouldn't change a thing except the sin that exists inside of them. They just don't think about themselves all that much. They're focused on other things. See, here's the thing. I know this doesn't seem like much of a warfare kind of tactic, but think about this for a moment. I I, I watched a, a story on the news some years ago. I wish I'd remembered this kid's name because I'd love to look it up and and show it to you. But in the story, a a young man was born with stumps instead of arms and legs. So he had four stumps instead of four arms and legs, and yet was so determined, figured out a way to use his stumps so that he could lift weights, so that he could work out, got himself in shape, and became a wrestler. Have you ever seen not professional wrestling, not that phony stuff, but the real stuff where people are on a mat and it's judged by actual rules? This guy was the top high school wrestler in his state in his weight class. He was unbeatable. And they talked to one of his opponents, and the opponent said something that made me laugh out loud. He said, you know, it's really no, not fair. 
He said, the guy is just this ball of muscle, and since he has no arms or legs, there's nothing for you to grab hold of, and then he's just on you, and you, you can't stop him. And I just laughed out loud. I'm like, are you seriously saying that because you've got arms and legs, he has an advantage over you? And then I realized what I was saying. Yes, actually, because without arms and legs, you've got no way to get leverage. And the devil's always looking for leverage in your life. He can't make you do anything. But if you can find something he can manipulate, twist to his advantage, he will. And that's why being humble defeats Satan, because it gives him no leverage. When there's no pride, when there's no self-pity, when there's no obsession with self, he can't use it against you. So what does Peter tell us? How do we become humble? In verse 5, we didn't read this, the one right before our passage, he says this, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Now, I'm going to take a wild guess that none of you slept in what you're wearing now. Am I right about that? Did anyone want to fess up and say, I slept in this last night? Okay, so that means you got dressed this morning, right? Now, I'm going to take a second wild guess that none of you is named Cinderella, so you didn't get dressed by a magical horde of mice and birds, right? You actually put on your own clothes because that's what grown-ups do or your wife dressed you. But one way or another, you chose to put on clothes today. Why am I saying this? Peter says, clothe yourselves with humility. That indicates it's a choice you make. It is a decision of the will. It is an act of saying, I, today, I choose to pursue humility. Now, you can't do it on your own. You need the help of God, but it is a conscious decision. Instead of being all about me, today, I want to seek the will of others. I want to seek the good of others ahead of myself. I want to make somebody else feel special. I want to listen and let somebody else talk. I want to let somebody else have the last word, even if I disagree with them. I want to serve somebody else. So, Lord, help me to do that. Help me see opportunities to do that. That's clothing yourself in humility. And then in verse 9, he comes back and says, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Now, what is that about? Peter is writing to Christians because he knows they're experiencing persecution for their faith for the very first time. And he's writing to encourage them. We've been studying 1 Peter on Wednesday nights and on Sunday nights at our young adult Bible study. So some of y'all know this. They're experiencing persecution and Peter is writing 1 Peter to tell us how to live in that kind of an environment. But Peter is writing from the city of Rome. The emperor of Rome at this time was a guy named Nero. You ever heard of him? Nero was not a friend of the Christians. It is well known that Nero was the first Roman emperor to to violently persecute the church. Stories we read from those times talk about Christians being caught, tied hand and foot, dipped in pitch, and set on fire to light the streets at night. So Peter is writing to the Turkish Christians and saying, listen, I know, I know life is difficult, but you're not special. You're not the only one who's suffering. Be thinking about us too. Be thinking about your brothers in other parts of the world. Now that's not him being insensitive. It's reminding us and them, if you focus on your problems, you and your particular problems, you will drive yourself insane. But if you fixate on other people, if you focus on others, if you pray for those who are struggling at least as badly as you are, it changes your heart. I have learned, I've learned that when I'm in a bad place emotionally, 
When, I, when life's got me down, the best way to overcome it is to pray for somebody else. And you might say, well, Jeff, how much time do I need to spend praying for other people? Well, the question is, how humble do you want to be? Because this is the way to do it. The devil's best tool is your pride, self-centeredness, and self-pity. You take those away, and he's got no leverage. Humble yourself. Second thing Peter says, cast your cares upon God. Cast your anxieties upon God. I love this because the, the verb that Peter uses by cast, you know, we, we think about casting your anxieties before the Lord, and we probably picture somebody setting something down in front of a throne. But the word that Peter uses is a, is a decisive word that means to fling it, to just decisively get rid of it. So to throw it so far, you'll never see it again. He's, t- he's calling on, on us to take whatever we are afraid of and just lay it down before God and, and walk away from it. Now, let me say something real quickly, because whenever you talk about this subject, there are Christians who beat themselves up and say, well, I guess I'm just not a very good Christian because I just can't do that. I, I worry, I, I fear all these things, I, I stay awake at night when stressful things are happening, and I just want to say, if that's the case with you, and it probably is for most of you, that doesn't mean your faith is weak. When the Bible says, fear not, which by the way is the most common command in Scripture, or some version of it, when the Bible says, fear not, it is not talking about the emotion of fear, because let's be honest, we can't control that. If your company is going through changes and people are being laid off and you think you might be next and you're worried about that, that's natural. If you and your spouse are having problems and you worry about whether you're going to be able to iron things out and you're afraid, that's natural. If your child doesn't come home on time and you're worried about what's happening to them, there's nothing wrong with you. See, when the Bible says fear not, it's not about the emotion you feel, which you can't control. It's about what you do with that emotion. And the reason I know that is because in the Garden of Gethsemane, just before he was arrested, Jesus was praying to God, and he was so terrified, he expressed such real human anguish that literally the capillaries in his skin burst, and he sweated drops of blood. That's how anguished he was. Jesus was scared, and yet he did not sin. Because in spite of his fear, he went to the cross anyway. So do not fear doesn't mean don't feel fear. Do not fear means don't let fear rule you. Don't let fear keep you from doing what needs to happen. Let me give you four examples. We can be afraid, but we don't let it steal our joy. We still still walk around rejoicing in Christ, even though we're worried about what's going to happen tomorrow or next week or next month. That's one example. Second example, some of us are are afraid of economic downturn, afraid that our 401k might vanish or that our savings, what little it is, will be gone or that our house will get repossessed. And so we become greedy. We become stingy. We become focused on the bottom line. When we do that, the devil wins. Third example, we look out and we see that the neighborhood that we grew up in, the town we grew up in, whatever the case may be, is changing. New people are moving in, and some of those people aren't like me. Maybe they look different. Maybe they have different color skin, speak different language. Maybe they have different mindsets, and I get angry about that because I don't like change, and I want everything to stay the same. And that causes me, that anger and that fear causes me to hate those people who are moving in. Instead of saying, hey, God, you're bringing people who I never would have met otherwise into my community so we have an opportunity to show them the love of Christ. 
Instead of seeing an opportunity, we see an enemy and the devil wins. Fourth example. Fourth example, uh, you're a single person and you're worried that maybe, maybe I won't I, won't never meet, I will never meet the person I've, I was destined to meet. I will never meet my soulmate. I will never experience love. And so you compromise your sexual standards, the things that you know are right, because you hope, if I go this far, at least maybe I will have someone who will accept me. And the devil wins yet again. You see, God knows what he's doing. In fact... Peter says a very beautiful thing. He says, cast your anxieties before the Lord because He cares for you. Do you know how unique that is in the history of the world? You know that human beings have invented all kinds of religions. And in, in fact, even some versions of Christianity that are not very biblical have created an, an image of God. And all these gods have this in common. They're powerful and they're different than you and me. Their thoughts are higher. Their, th their ways are higher. But only the one true God, only the God of Scripture, only the God of Jesus says, I care about you individually. I know how many hairs are on your head. I know what you're going through. I know how many tears are kept in my bottle. I know every day you're ever going to live. God cares for you. You can trust Him. You can bring your anxieties to Him. And you can say to Him, Lord... I'm worried about what's going to happen tomorrow. I'm worried about this thing. I'm going to emotional and physical needs in every way. And I'm going to do things your way, knowing that's the right way. That is the best way. Remember, he's writing to people going through persecution. And we don't think, based on his words, we don't think that the, the Turkish Christians he's writing to have started experiencing the kind of persecution that Peter would. But it was coming. What I'm talking about is that persecution where you literally get to the point where someone arrests you and says, renounce Christ or die. You realize, of course, that's happening in other parts of our world even today. And it happened back then. We know what happened to Peter. The church tradition tells us he was eventually arrested and Nero ordered him killed, executed, and he was crucified upside down. One of 11 of the original apostles who died for their faith along with thousands of other Christians. And the, the history books tell us the amazing thing that happened was the more the Roman Empire tried to wipe out Christianity, the faster it spread. There was an early Christian leader named Tertullian who wrote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the gospel. So Peter is writing and saying, stand firm, because the devil's got nothing he can throw at you that you can't handle. You've got the power of God inside of you. You will win. Do not give up. Do not turn back. Do not walk away. You will win. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You know, the book of Revelation is written during this time, right? And around 100 AD, when the persecution against Christians is terrible. And Revelation 12 talks about that. I want to quote you a verse in there because, by the way, guys, a lot of people get this idea of spiritual warfare and they picture someone walking around being an amateur exorcist, casting the devil out of this rock and that sofa cushion, or rebuking the devil in prayer. I don't see anywhere in Scripture where we're called upon to do those things. We're called upon to trust in God, and God is bigger than the devil. We're called to trust in our Lord, and He takes care of the fight for us. We resist Him, we resist the enemy by standing firm with Christ. 
And this, is, this verse in Revelation 12 talks about it. It says, they conquered him, that is the devil. They conquered him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, for they did not love their lives in the face of death. So there's two things we do to defeat the devil. This is how we resist him. By the word of their testimony means we tell our story. And you may have friends, you may have acquaintances who are smarter than you, who have arguments that you can't figure out, questions about faith that you can't answer, but they cannot argue with your story. You may not be able to prove beyond a shadow of a doubt that anything you say is true, but you can say, here's what happened to me. And there's no argument against that. By the word of their testimony, they defeat the devil. And secondly, by the blood of the lamb. What does that mean? It means the devil has no answer for the gospel. See, there's a story that is so compelling, almost no one can walk away from it if they really hear it. And that's the story of a God who loves you so much, he's willing to become a human so that he can die to save your soul. And more than anything else, the devil wants that news to be kept secret. So if we want to defeat him, we will do everything we can to let people know this is what you mean to God. This is what he has done for you. This is the truth about you and about the world and about eternity. And we're living in a time where it's harder and harder to share that message, where it's just, it's not the way it once was. I understand that. But again, there are people you've spent days and days with, years and years with, who've never heard what's most important about you. Isn't it about time you sit down with someone and say, let me tell you something about myself. Let me tell you what's most important to me and just tell your story. There are other people in your life that you've never invited to come to church with you. And I'm not saying getting, coming to church gets them saved by any means. That's not the end game. But I can make you this promise. If you bring a friend of yours to First Baptist Conroe, they're going to hear the gospel. That's not, we're not the only church that's true of, but I guarantee you it's true here. So talk to them. Say, listen, I, I promise we don't handle snakes and we don't foam at the mouth and, you know, you, you won't feel weird. Just come. I'll buy you lunch afterwards. See what happens. For some people, it's, it's going to be more along the lines of they are cruel. They're sarcastic. They love to try to make you feel dumb. And the best thing you can do is just show them love in the midst of that. Until, as Peter says in that same chapter, they are ashamed of their slander because of the grace you show toward them. For others, it's going to be a matter of doing what we're talking about at Sam Houston Elementary or what, what we already do with Mission Arlington or what we already do through Literacy uh, Plus, the, the, uh, the ESL ministry we have and many other ministries. What we do when we go out and we help someone with some physical or emotional need without asking for anything in return till finally they ask why. And most of all, it's going to be found when you and I take the time to invest in someone's life over a long period of time when we really establish true friendships and we're there for them the way no one else is. And someday the day comes when they experience a crisis and they say, there's nobody else I would trust with this other than you because I can tell you've got something going on in your life that I need. And that's our opportunity. By the blood of the Lamb and the word of the testimony, the enemy has no answer for that. See, the... In, in Africa in 1898, Colonel Patterson finally caught those two lions. And he shot them both. And as you see, they, uh, they can still be seen today. That's a picture from the Field Museum of Natural History in Chicago. See, the good news is, 2,000 years ago, our foreman, our Lord, 
Jesus defeated the devil once and for all. He defanged our lion. And he's still out there, but he can't do anything to you and me that we don't willingly let him do. We have the victory. Let's walk in that victory. See, the really, really great news is the last phrase, the last sentence of this verse, of this passage is true. To him be the, the dominion forever and ever. Our Savior has won. At the cross, he won. At the empty tomb, he won. And this we know. We will see the enemy run. Amen?